All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucksters, what the fucking ears, what the fucking knots? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my show. This is WTF the podcast. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate your listenership. <laughs> what? Yeah, I do. But why am I? Sometimes I just talk and I don't even, it doesn't, I don't realize what I'm saying until after it comes out. It sounded very professional. It was pleasant. There was true gratitude there. Anyway, thanks for listening. It's an amazing show today. I had an, uh, an incredible conversation with Sir Patrick Stewart. This is the second uh, Sir I've had on the show. And uh, and and equally as amazing a conversation as I had with Sir Ian McKellen uh, not long ago. Uh, I was thrilled to have him. And I'm not even that huge. Well, let's be honest. I'm not a Star Trek guy at all, but I am a Patrick Stewart guy. Uh, he's a very impressive character, and it, it was a very surprising and candid and, and emotional conversation. I was, uh, I was uh, happy to have him here, and I think you'll enjoy that talk. Listen to me setting up the talk like a professional. I'm going to be at, in Australia October 15th at Sydney, Australia at the State Theater, October 16th at the Palais Theater in Melbourne, and October 17th at Brisbane City Hall in Brisbane. Uh, please... Um, Go to my website, wtfpod.com slash calendar for the links to the tickets. If you're in Australia, you're going to be in Australia. I'm excited about those shows, and I will be there. Some other bits of business here on the show today. I can tell you about my personal struggles with my roof and my tools. I can do that, uh, but I think I need to address a situation that happened in the press and happened on my phone. I got a call a few days ago, a text from uh, from my friend uh, Steve Renazizi. He's a comedian. And um, I thought he maybe, uh, I didn't know what it was about. I thought he might want to come on and talk about his special. Turns out it was much more dire. I got on the phone with him, and uh, this was before any news broke. And, and I said, what's up? And he goes, well, look, this is, uh, it's it's about me and, uh, and, uh, I need to apologize to you um, for lying to you. And I was like, what? And he said, uh, you know, I was on your podcast and I talked about uh, being in the World Trade Center on 9-11 and and I wasn't. And uh, I just, I need to, I need to apologize for lying to you. I'm sorry. And it's not true. And I'm just not that guy that does that. And I'm just, I'm coming clean and and, I'm I'm just, I want to apologize to you. And I said, okay. Uh, I appreciate that and, you know, good for you for owning it. But, uh, but it, you know, it hit the news. It was in the New York times, I guess. And it, it obviously has gotten, uh, traction and, and, uh, you know, the podcast that I had him on that happened, uh, that was almost six years ago and, you know, that's out there. So I know some people played that and, you know, it's been, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. And, um, I don't know that he necessarily owed me an apology. I think it's a, a you know the, the the right thing to do to apologize for lying. But but I need you guys to know that you know this is not sixty minutes. If someone comes on the show and tells a story about their life, uh, I'll, I I will take what they're saying at face value. If people come on here and make stuff up, I mean that's on them. This is obviously going to be a a life changer for Steve, and he's got to live with this. That's where that's at. I appreciate the apology. It was a it was a bad thing to do. 
But uh, you know that's on Steve now, and 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 that's you know his cross to bear and his conscience, and and he's got to live with the uh, repercussions of what he did, uh, and and uh, and now you know owning up to it. So so that's that's where I stand on that. So shifting gears, the other day it rained in L.A. I'd like to thank whoever was responsible for that, or maybe just the universe or weather patterns or what. But fuck, man, did we need the rain or what? My, uh, I, I think that the structure of my house was literally drying out. Everything is drying up and the rain comes. And I was so thrilled, of course, to see my new driveway in action, to see those drains working, to not see sandbags in front of my fucking garage, to see my driveway dry and water free because the drainage system works. But I was surprised to wake up the day of the rains to rain in my kitchen water was raining into my kitchen so i was alone in the house it was early in the morning water was pouring into my kitchen it was raining the drains were working but there was a problem obviously and that had only happened one time before when the water on my roof got so high because of a clogged the only gutter i have there's only one outlet for water up there and that got clogged and the water level rose above the seam of the roof but it meant that i had to get up on my roof I had to get on a ladder and I can't tell you how much it took, how much personal strength it took not for me just to angrily climb up that ladder alone with no help, no one spotting me, no one there to see if I fell and cracked my head. Uh, It took a lot. And I think it's a sign of growth that I wasn't so stubborn that I may not be here today, that I wasn't so stubborn that I might... uh, you know, be, you know, in a hospital babbling or in a coma. So I would like a little credit and a pat on the back for not being a fucking old proud idiot and just making it up that ladder in the pouring rain out of anger to deal with that myself and possibly hurting myself. What I did was I sat there and I thought, well, who could come over right now? Who could come over? (laughs) Who could come over and help me right now? immediately because i need help i called the contractor who did my driveway i texted him dude trouble water coming in the house didn't hear back from him thought maybe ryan singer there's no way that fucker's up at eight o'clock in the morning maybe my neighbor when i go knock on my neighbor's door how about my girl how about the woman in my life i didn't want to bother her she's got her own shit going on making her own house and you know right and doing her own shit but I told her what was happening and I was just going to wait it out. I had to get the ladder out. She's like, I'm coming over. So there we were out in the rain, in my rain gear, her and her hat, climbing up the fucking ladder. So I got up to the roof and there was about a foot of fucking water sitting up there like a little goddamn lake. And then I released it. I pulled that grate out and just 40 gallons of water just ran through my new draining system. It was exciting. I was happy there was a solution. So I guess that what I'm telling you is that I think we should all be happy that uh, it's not raining in my kitchen and that uh, I didn't uh, maim myself or lobotomize myself or die by being stupid on a ladder. See that? Maybe it's a lesson story. Maybe. I don't know. Those of you who have been listening for a few years, I think might remember when I fell 15 feet off that ladder onto my back 
And the woman I was living with came out yelling and screaming and crying at what an idiot I was. She was just inside. Why didn't I tell her? Oh, because I'm a proud, stubborn old fuck. So learn my lesson. Okay, enough said. Oh, I saw Straight Outta Compton. I thought it was spectacular. I don't do a lot of movie reviews here, but man, here's the deal. I missed that whole thing. I missed it because I remember when it was happening, but I just was not, it was not my music. It was not my world. I don't know how I missed it, but I missed it. But the amazing thing about going to see a biopic where you know very little about who's the bio is of. I mean, I'm obviously I'm familiar with Dr. Dre. I'm familiar with Ice Cube. I, you know, I, I, I didn't know much about Easy. I didn't know anything about any of them. So I didn't really know enough about them to sort of have that feeling where you're like, oh, this does not like the real guy. Like these, it was an amazingly acted movie. Uh, historically, I imagine it's fairly accurate. Uh, it was produced by by Cube, and I think Easy E and uh, his widow is involved, and and uh, and uh, Dre was involved. So I just thought it to be an amazingly acted, um, you know, well crafted movie. It was exciting. It was compelling. I learned things. I wanted to go listen to all the music now. Like. That's the beautiful thing about the internet and about the fact, and I'll, I'll support this again and again, there is no late to the party. You can just go get that stuff. But man, the whole life, I, I just thought, I just thought it was great. And I, you know, I need to, I, I really want to, I, I want to interview Ice Cube. I mean, out of the whole crew, that guy seemed, the guy who, who played him was amazing. And uh, the, the sort of depth that it seemed like that the, 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 the righteous spirit of the whole undertaking was sort of on his shoulders. And that whole world of the music business is, is really new to me. Uh, it shouldn't be, uh, it, there's an ignorance to my, on my part, but, um, I thought it was fucking exciting and I thought it was a great movie that I guess that's all I'm saying. I'm ignorant about rap music and I, I loved that movie and I learned something and, um, it was, I fucking, the, the spirit of it was just amazing. So now it's my pleasure to uh to to bring to you my conversation with Sir Patrick Stewart. Uh his show Blunt Talk, his new show airs on Saturday nights at 9 p.m. on Stars, but you know him from uh the other things. <laughs> uh he's an amazing guy. So uh here we go. You are the uh, the second night I've had. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Ian McKellen was here. That's right. So he was <laughs> talking about Mr. Holmes. Yes. Yeah. In and which he's, I think he's brilliant in that film. He was great. I, I don't I don't know how much we got in, into that ultimately, but we did talk about uh, Shakespeare. Yes. Yes, because uh, he knows I, something about that. He's a, he's pretty on top of the Shakespeare business. Yes, he is. And uh, I, I am one of those people that never really locked into Shakespeare. Was, Why was that? Because I don't, I don't, it just, I didn't understand it. It seemed to take a long time. <laughs> you know, and when I saw it, it was like, I don't, I don't really get it. Really? And, but I'm not diminishing him. I'm, I'm certainly not going to say that Shakespeare was some, you know, not a, uh, the, the greatest writer ever. I just, I wish I could relate to it more. And then he... You know, we talked about it a bit, and then at the end, he performed Shakespeare to my face directly, yes. and he delivered the message. 
I, he, ah. he uh, yeah, I don't know if that was intention, uh, but he did something from Thomas More, I guess, sort of, which is a little off the beaten path. Oh yeah, that. that's an uh, an alleged um, authorship. But he said that was the only one that is in Shakespeare's handwriting, supposedly, in the British Museum. That there was this piece, yes. and it was a monologue about immigrants. Yes, and he did it looking right at me out of nowhere. And I was like, all right, I get it now. I understand. And did he do that off book? Was he? Yes, he was prepared completely. Wow. He did. <laughs> what a show off. <laughs> <laughs> but you must have Shakespeare monologues in your mind at, yeah. on hand yeah. at will. They have been cluttering up my brain for decades. I mean, I can remember speeches that I learned when I was a teenager. Really? Oh, sure. They're, it's all there. And my wife this morning quoted... Um, she quoted uh, something from Hamlet, and and you know she's a singer, so yeah. she's not supposed to know right. Shakespeare. She got a couple of words wrong, but right. otherwise it yeah. was a, it was a very good quote. Uh, and I could I could you could, add the words that were missing, but I, yeah, I I have speeches, you know, I, I, hours of speeches in my head that just don't go away. There's something about Shakespeare. There's something about the nature of the of the blank verse. Uh-huh. Even his prose, uh-huh. which is a little trickier, right? but it sticks. Right, and, and it's almost like a song. Uh, y- yes, be- well, because there is a rhythm, right? and there there is a tune, there is music to right. some Shakespeare. And do you find yourself, uh, are you one of those people that can quote it appropriately in conversation, like out of nowhere, uh, the, uh, and a situation is happening, and, and you draw in, do you, do you summon Shakespeare into uh, your... Well, uh, I have done... <laughs> Uh, it's it's a little bit um, pretentious, I think, to do that. But I do it in blunt talk in episode one. Uh, I saw it. I yeah, watched it last I'm night. Quoting Hamlet from the roof of my car, and that, that you didn't have to. That didn't have to write that in for you. Uh, they did write it in, but uh, it was a line that I've spoken several hundred times, so uh-huh. I didn't have any difficulty remembering. You've it. done Hamlet several hundred times. Uh, performances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, but, that's but, right. That's but right, not yeah. playing the prince, playing the king. I. I never acted Hamlet. It's a disappointment in my life, partly because I feel really ready to do it now. Right. I feel that probably this right. will be the best time in my life. However, I'm probably about 50 <laughs> years too old to play Hamlet. But there's, you can interpret Shakespeare how you'd like. Any it? way you like. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, there's been a very notable production in England yeah. this past year when uh, Hamlet was played by a beautiful young actress. Uh, How was that received? It, by it was received marvelously. A lot of enthusiasm for, uh-huh. for her performance. So, you know, uh, I, I I wonder sometimes about the radio. Maybe I could come and do Hamlet here. We could do so, Hamlet. Yeah. I, I, it would be an interesting experiment. It would probably be more comedic if I did it with you, yes. not really knowing it. That would be the way to do yeah, it. Yeah, I think uh, no? it would be hugely <laughs> entertaining. But, you know, we'd need to get a lot of other actors in here because it's a big cast of characters. Well, it's gonna, well you can do uh, many voices. You can do. You can do. All right. Well, so it could be like a one-man show. Yeah. Why don't you oh, do? Why haven't you tried that? Yeah. Great idea. Because you know who I had in here yesterday. I had Peter Bogdanovich in here. Did and, you? Uh huh. I wish I had known. Uh, there was a time I was seeing Peter a great deal. We yeah. Became very friendly. Well, he he recalled when I said you were coming. He recalled the performance of your one-man show, the Christmas Carol show. Yes. And he said that he had to compose himself. 
after the performance before he met you because he was too emotional and then he said he could not help but crying anyways. He did. (laughs) It was a memorable occasion. First of all, I was thrilled to meet him because Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed his work. Enjoyed, no, 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 that's too light a word. I've loved his work. Yeah. And and, uh, I was almost ready to leave the theater when he he showed up. And um, it's true. He started to talk about the performance and began to weep yeah um but you know that's a christmas carol is a very potent story it's a very simple story and often people think of it as just a christmas story or even just a children's story yeah but in fact it's about redemption and and if you have a life or a history that maybe needs a little bit of redeeming then i think uh, christmas carol is going to affect you <laughs> i need that i yeah. need redeeming yeah we we <laughs> We, all of us, would be helped by a little bit of redemption. Well, what compelled you to, because I didn't really know about that, but that is something that you, you did, uh, you know, once you once you got here, right? You were in Los Angeles. Well, it was uh, my response to this, the growing realization that mm-hmm. Star Trek The Next Generation was not going to be the failure that everybody had predicted it would be, including yeah. my own agent. Right. When I balked at the idea of signing a contract for six years, yeah. he said, don't worry, don't worry. Gonna... You'll, you'll be lucky to make it through the first season. You cannot revive an iconic <laughs> show like like Star Trek. It's yeah. a crazy idea. Right. So, you know, come make a little bit of money for the first time in your life. Yeah. Get a suntan, you uh-huh. know, meet uh-huh. some girls. Yeah. and Hollywood, uh, and man. Go- exactly, uh-huh. exactly. Um, Anyway, the story turned out to be very different, and it only underlined what the great William Goldman said about in Hollywood, nobody knows anything about anything. Yeah. And um, we were a hit. Yeah. So I... I, I I knew all of those stories about English actors that had come to Hollywood. Like and about who? Like which were the ones that stood out? Well, I mean, you, I mean, English actors, great English actors. Olivier, Richard Burton, yeah. Peter O'Toole, right. uh, Tony Hopkins, yeah, um, all actors who came here and didn't come back. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, Tony is somebody I miss a great deal so far as his stage work is concerned. Uh, but I understand it's a very pleasant life in Los Angeles. You've grown to understand uh, that? Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and even though I was here for 17 years until I couldn't take it anymore and I left. But um, the what I was scared of was that that would happen to me right. and that I would lose my nerve about being on the stage Mm -hmm. um i'd I'd heard stories from so many actors that this had happened you stay away too long and you can't from the stage you can't get back on there well you get a fear i'd imagine indeed exactly that so i was determined this was not going to happen to me yeah so during the second season of star trek um after i'd done my laundry on saturday mornings which was my system that I had I and I still do my own laundry I was doing it all day yesterday it's it's just a Grounding. slight obsession that but I it, it it as somebody said to me the other day on the platform of the subway station in Brooklyn where I live hey man you keeping it real <laughs> they said to me and um Longies, but it's one of those weird things like I you know in between these last two interviews I, I, I've embarked on trying to make uh, horchata, the Mexican uh, drink, the rice drink. And there are things that you do that, that really sort of ground you and connect you, you know, to, to just being a person. 
Exactly. Um, uh, uh, there is something therapeutic. I'm not exactly sure of what the nature of that therapy you- really is, but it it um, I, I just like the routine. Of do you, are you do you, have, are you like a uh, guy who needs to have his things folded a certain way? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I wash my t-shirts. I do mm. underwear, socks, and t-shirts. Yeah. That's all. Nothing yeah. else. Right. Um, so don't think about giving me your shirts okay. to take that, away yeah, with yeah, me. You don't want the bag? I'm no, 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 no. <laughs> that I couldn't cope with. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the t-shirts, I have a way of folding them. Right. And uh, uh, it's, um, it, it pleases me. <laughs> Some people think it's eccentric. Anyway, these weekends in the second season of uh-huh. Star Trek, I spent most of Saturday, devising solo shows for myself. I actually created about six of them in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And one of them was a version of Christmas Carol. I'd had the idea when my... I used to be a choir boy in my church in England, and they they wanted to raise money. I think the organ needed restoring. Oh, this was called Murfield Parish Church. But it was the Church of England? Yes, Church of England, uh, an Anglican church. And so I said I would would put on this performance for them before Christmas, and they pretty much sold out the the church. And I read you. Just then, me. and how old were you then? I was, uh, I was in my forties. Oh, oh, oh! I thought, I, I thought I when you a were child. a kid, you did it. Oh no, okay. no, no, no! I was going to say, no, that's no. impressive. Doing all no, that. I, I don't think anyone would have come to see me say? reading a Christmas Carol when I was a kid. <laughs> so I did this thing, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, I didn't cut it enough. So the audience sat there for nearly four hours in this rather drafty gothic victorian church but the story got to me and when i i was thinking about sh- compiling shows yeah. that i could easily perform that i could pack everything i needed into the trunk of my car mm-hmm. and take it to a college or a community center right. a campus somewhere sure. um and and in that way keep my stage chops in in, in you know, but it, you wanted to be a, a touring uh, uh, act. You, you were sort of, it's almost like a comedian. Like, I can just throw this in the car. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And but self-contained, it, limited lighting. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I needed nothing at all, really, right. except, yeah, minimal lighting and some decent clothes to right. wear, comfortable yeah. clothes. Um, that you and, washed. Yeah, yeah, that I'd washed myself. <laughs> um, but I took, um, I, I took this Christmas carol idea very seriously, and I remember I... I cut it properly this time. I got it cut down. And I wanted to tell a version of the story because it had always seemed to me that the sentimental side of Christmas Carol was what had been um, emphasized, except in the great Alistair Sims black and white British film version in which he played a a real monster, Scrooge. I wanted to uh, the the piece to be more about what we've been discussing, redemption. So... um, I read it for a group of uh, uh, teachers, professors from the English department at UCLA. I read it one evening on the hearth rug of uh, my friend's house with all of these scholars sitting around me, and they all said, you've got a show there. Uh, you, you know, you should put it together. So I, I did it with the script in my hand. I had piles of script dotted about the stage uh-huh. uh, because I, I couldn't learn it. It was right. a two-hour show. Right. But then a um, good friend of mine said, I'm taking you to Broadway with this show. It's 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 too good just to be taking around campuses. So then you had to memorize then I had, it. Then I had to learn it, <laughs> yeah. yes. So it was interesting. So you decided to 
to showcase it for academics to make sure you were on the level with it. Yes, exactly. I wanted I, I wanted to have confirmation that what I was doing with the story was not undermining it or was not in in some way being disrespectful to what the great Dickens yeah. had done. Don't want to diminish Dickens. No, uh, you, you don't. At your peril. <laughs> yeah. So they gave me a thumbs up and I went ahead. And then finally I had to sit down and learn 49 pages. Of, uh, but not, but not unlike Shakespeare, you get the rhythm. I imagine you do, and it sticks. I mean, I haven't performed this now for many many years, but you know, if we had the time, I could start right. You know, right now, Marley was dead to begin with. Uh, there is absolutely no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know, and yeah, I yeah. could go on for that. But I, but you, you don't want to hear Dickens this morning. Well, I do like the idea that. The fear of not doing stage work and the fact that, you know, when you think about Anthony Hopkins, that you have some uh, nostalgia or melancholy that he's not being, you know, what he used to be on stage. Because I have no idea really about Anthony Hopkins on stage or or I have not seen you work on stage either. But there's something because I just saw some theater recently and I don't go a lot. And there's something necessary and irreplaceable about the experience as an audience member, as a performer for stage. And and, uh, I, I know why it is. It is because, unlike television or film, mm-hmm. the the air that is being breathed in that theater is being breathed by the performer and by the audience, too. And the audience become a part of the performance. Sometimes I, I meet audiences after a play, and they, they always seem surprised when I insist that they are a very important part of that unique performance, because every stage performance is unique. Yes. It, nothing... Is ever simply repeated? Yeah, um, you know, so many things can affect how you perform, how you feel. Are you well? Are you unwell? Did you have a good day? Have you got a headache? Did sure. you have enough to eat? Did yeah. you have too much to yeah. eat? Yeah. Are um, you awake? Are you, are you drunk? <laughs> exactly. All of those elements <laughs> have got to be taken into account, and so um, it 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 is a one off experience, and um, that's why I think theater has so much power potential power mm-hmm. to change the way people feel and i i do remember um a friend of mine coming to see christmas carol on when it was on broadway one of the occasions mm-hmm. and she said to me i wish you could have seen the people leaving the theater by the looks on their faces i knew they were not feeling the same things they had been feeling when they walked into the theater. In other words, what you did, you and Dickens between you, had changed them that evening, made them think differently about the world. And that's the best possible comment you can ever hear about a stage performance. And yeah, because everyone has their own human experience with it. Whereas you go to a movie, uh, it's a very controlled situation. and, And most of the time you leave a movie and it's gone. It's it's it, you know it's just, it can be yeah it, it can be I mean there are movies that stick for me um, but it it there I guess is I'm a, talking about a certain type of movie yeah yeah, yeah. there is a <laughs> there is a distancing uh-huh. effect I find by film and television but when you're watching flesh and blood right. and the actor is experiencing these things and communicating that experience directly in action, live to an audience, it's very potent. But there's a built-in vulnerability to it because it is just flesh and blood up there and there's a moment, like sometimes just when a play starts, I I almost start crying. Even It doesn't Uh matter what it is. Really? Really? Yeah, because you're beginning this... Yeah. This thing with these yes. people, yes. and they're people, and there's a lot on the line. Yes, yes, yes. There's yes. A, there's a there's a built-in vulnerability to it, no yeah. matter what it is. And and the key to that, I think, is that uh, 
everything is happening for the first time. Right. Uh, it doesn't matter how many performances you've done at the play. Uh, when I prepare to go on for the first entrance, I know nothing about the next three hours. My mind is a blank. All I know is that I have one thing that I've got to take one step and walk onto the stage. Then I have a line to speak. But beyond that, I know nothing. For instance... And you just hope you take off. I mean, you don't want to be thinking about that. If you're thinking about the cues or whatever, you're in trouble, right? Disaster. No, 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 <laughs> yeah. no. It's, it's, you know, living in the moment, right. uh, which is a cliche about performance, but it's really, really important. For example, um, I did a production of that great 20th century American masterpiece, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Right. Edward Albee's yeah. astonishing play. And that play, the curtain goes up on an empty living room. Mm -hmm. And then you hear a key being put into a lock. The lock turns, the door opens, and on into the living room walk George and Martha. And Martha says her first line. Well, I asked the, the uh, set builders if they would put a real lock on the outside and give me the key. Because when, when I was standing behind that door waiting to begin this three-hour-long mammoth of a play, yeah. uh, all I knew was I have this key in my hand, I put in the lock, and I turn it. Yeah. And I don't know anything else right. at all. Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds a bizarre way to approach creativity, but it, it allows you more convincingly to be in that moment, to react spontaneously, not like somebody who has had five right. weeks of rehearsal right it, or, it, it, or done it, it, 20 performances of it already but it is literally happening pulls for the you into the time. present yeah yeah and it it makes it makes it exciting yeah so when wh i mean but when did this all start for you i mean when you, uh, where did you grow up exactly i grew up in the north of england in the west riding of yorkshire um and i grew up speaking not just with an accent but speaking dialect we we were um i what does it sound like uh, uh, you want an example? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I would go to a friend's house yeah. to see uh, if he could come out to play. Right. And I would say to him, Atta lekin art. What? Atta lekin art. Okay. Atta, yeah. art thou? Yeah. Because I used thee and thou when I was a child. Really? Yes, yes. It was kind of standard. Thee, that's no good. Yeah. You know. Um, Atta lekin art. Atta. Art thou yeah. or are you? Yeah. Lakin is a dialect word for playing, and actors in the 16th, 17th, 18th century were known as Lakers. Uh -huh. So Lakin can mean acting or it can mean playing soccer. Or so this was or just what your family spoke? Yes, yeah, and all my friends and all, my, all the neighbors, everyone around spoke with this dialect. So we understood one another. It was people from another part of England who's. Oh, and, heaven forfend from another country who would be very very confused by what we said and this is uh, they, are there other dialects in england or is this like oh what? many many uh, and uh, you know there was there was a, a, a dialect expert uh -huh. who identified just in the area where i grew up five different accents and what is this what are these old these are old english words usually or they, they are yeah. yeah yeah um as i said using the word laker is mm -hmm. is one of them for player middle english would it be um, yes, mm -hmm. it will have its roots, certainly in Middle English. Mm -hmm. um, my my mother's sister, we were a kind of performing family. It was mm -hmm. You were not thought weird or a show-off if at a party or Christmas time you stood up and recited something or sang a song or played a musical instrument. Um, uh, my aunt used to recite this poem every, every Christmas. Yeah. She was not an actress. She was not a performer, but it was the same poem. And it started like this. 
I was sitting by Aston last evening. My mother and father were yoff, because they'd yet that my old aunt Susanna were laid up in bed with a cough. She's some brass as my old aunt Susanna. That's reason she's looked after so. If they've note, well, they're note but a bother. There's a sample we old Uncle Joe. Now, that's how people talked huh. in my community. So I think I understood the first little idea of the first sentence. If it, was it slightly dirty? You didn't understand. No, it wasn't dirty. You were thinking of the word arson. <laughs> arson is a version of um, a fireplace. Uh-huh. I was sitting by the fireplace right. last night. I was sitting by arson last evening. Right. Uh, arson, it, because it, it comes from ash yeah, and yeah. coal yeah, where, yeah, you yeah. Burn, where, where you burn the fire. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that all had to go. Right. I, I got an acting teacher when I was 12, which is a little bit presumptuous. Do you I have suppose. other siblings? I had two brothers, two older brothers, uh-huh. yeah. and uh, it was my oldest brother who got me interested in Shakespeare because he loved Shakespeare, and he would read bedtime stories to me um, when he was in the RAF, when he came home on leave, uh, but the bedtime stories he wrote he read to me were Macbeth and King Lear and those Hamlet, are, of course. Heavy, and I heavy did, to go to sweep to. I, I, <laughs> yes. It, I didn't understand very much. Yeah. But I, well, A, I loved it that my brother was reading to me. That was great because he was 17 years older than me. Oh, my much gosh. Older. Really? And I, I, I loved the sound of the words. Yeah. But there was a phrase in Hamlet. He used to love to do Hamlet's soliloquies. Mm-hmm. But there was a phrase in the most famous soliloquy of all, to be or not to be, when Hamlet says, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, you know, when, yeah. when we have ended our yeah. life, in yeah. other words. Well, w- in my part of the world, we pronounced coal, C-O-A-L, yeah. as coil. Right. C O I L. Right. So when my when my brother read shuff, shuffled off this mortal coil, yeah. I heard shuffled and thought, well, he must mean shoveled. So it's a line about somebody shoveling coal. Right. And I believe that until I was well into my teens. <laughs> Um, it's like not knowing the lyrics of a song, and you say them wrong. Well, uh, yeah. for example, let me give yeah. you another instance of yeah. that, because it'll it'll give you an idea of how I was brought up and lived. My brother and I listened yeah. to the radio, and every Saturday morning there was a, a record program for children called Children's Choice, and you would write in requesting it for a birthday or for a friend who was sick. And we uh, often the songs would be repeated, so we learned the lyrics of all of these songs. Yeah. But there was one Dean Martin song. Oh, yeah? And... We heard him sing it many times, and we learned the lyrics. And I thought it went, When the moon hits your eye like a big piece of pie. Sure, that, sure. But it's not big piece no, of pie. No, it's pizza. But why was I singing piece of pie? Because I didn't know what a pizza was. <laughs> I, I, I'd never seen a pizza. Right. Ne- never heard of them. Sure. It, it was something completely foreign. So we decided he must be singing rather clumsily. Piece of pie. <laughs> right. And the other incident is you were really too young to even probably take in the idea of the mortal coil. That you exactly. Probably, <laughs> exactly. If you knew what that meant, it would probably be disturbing. It, it, it would have been disturbing, confusing. So <laughs> I happily settled for shoveling coal rather <laughs> yeah. than talking about the necessary end to life. So your oldest brother was 17 years older? Yeah. And the middle brother was how many years older? Five. Oh, okay. 
So, so the first one was uh, like a, a long time before. Oh, oh yeah, and uh, because my uh, uh, my father got my mother pregnant and immediately joined the army, and uh, didn't marry her and <laughs> went off. And he was in actually stationed in India with the British Army in India, the Raj, all through the twenties and early thirties. Uh, then after ten years, he came home and he married her, and that was during World War. Oh, that was two. between World War One and World, World War Two. Yeah. But, uh, of course, he was old enough uh, to be conscripted during the—my um, my eldest brother was, so he was in the RAF for his war years. Mm. How, what year? What, what war was that? That would be the Second World War, 1939 to 1945. He Really? He was, he was old enough to be uh, in the RAF, and, of course, my father was away at the war all the time. I, I, I had an idyllic— f- first four and a half, five years of my life, born in 1940, thinking, because I, I worked out the dates, because I know when he left home to go into the army. Your father that, or your brother? My, my father. Yeah. I was probably conceived on his last night in England. Right. Or last night as a civilian. <laughs> sure. It, it works out properly. Yeah. And so for the next four years, I lived with my mother and my brother, and we had a, nice a happy, time. idyllic life. Yeah. Um, and then... This big man suddenly showed up when I was four, going on five, and uh, changed everything for us. That you knew from pictures, uh, yeah, only from pictures. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he was wearing uniform, and he was—he uh, finished his army career as a superstar. He was regimental sergeant major of the parachute regiment. He was—he was an airborne division, and as such, had a very, very important job. Uh huh. And and you, you've spoken about him uh, publicly a lot. Mm-hmm. And he came home a, a, a volatile person. Yes. Um, he, and I didn't know this until a very few years ago, that they called it shell shock in those days. Um, his experiences in 1940 with the British Expeditionary Force, when we first invaded Europe after the outbreak of war, it was a disaster. It went horribly yeah. wrong. And what led to the evacuation of the British forces from Dunkirk. Yeah. In fact, my father was in Cherbourg. He was on the last ship to leave Cherbourg for England, and the uh, the Nazis were already in the suburbs of right. the town yeah. when his boat actually sailed. So, so he was very fortunate to get out. Otherwise, he'd have spent those four years in a prisoner of war camp. So he saw a lot of action, in other words. He saw a great deal of action, yes. And once he joined the parachute regiment, which he did, I think, in 1942, uh, he jumped into action, I think, four times. I mean, yeah. into action, meaning that he, his parachute opened and he was being shot at. So you know. to, to find a definition for whatever you experienced, how were you framing it before you were able to be sympathetic to uh, to to how you were brought up. I mean, to to, to deal with post traumatic stress and and to to see it that way, the, the, I imagine it created an empathy that you didn't have before. Uh, it certainly did a huge empathy because um, I have talked publicly for a number of years now. For a long time, I couldn't about about the violence in my home. Uh, my father. Uh, be- proved to be a weekend alcoholic. So the weekends were dangerous times. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always. Sometimes he would come back from the pub or the club, wherever he'd been, in a good mood, and mm-hmm. that was lovely. Mm-hmm. And we could all have a good night's sleep. Sometimes he would be uh, ill-tempered, and, and it could lead to blows and uh, police. And to everybody in the and, family? or to- No, 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 only my mother. He never, never struck myself or my brother. Um, and so when I became 
active in the world of, of um, uh, d- domestic violence mm-hmm. issues. I joined a, one brilliant organization in England called Refuge, mm-hmm. which provides safe houses for women and children. Um, two women in the UK die every week at the hands of a partner, lover, mm-hmm. husband. Or what, it's, it's, the figures are, are terrifying. Um, and so my father got a very, very bad press for a very long time. And then I learned this thing about him being um, suffering from PTSD in 1940, which was never treated. There was no treatment for it. Just man up. Exactly. Yeah. You know, be a man. Right. P- pull yourself together and be a man. That's all the help he would have been given. And when I talked to an expert on PTSD and I told him about my father's behavior in his life, he said, all of these are classic symptoms yeah. of sufferers from this. So I, just, I resolved then to do for the memory of my father what I've been doing for the memory of my mother. And I joined another organization called Combat Stress, which specializes in providing care for veterans who suffer from PTSD. It's, it's amazing work. And it's, uh, it's beautiful that you're doing that. I can't see like I can't even imagine what that turn must have been and how much like to to cuz you know everyone has problems you know, well most people have problems with with their parents i think and sure. and, and something yeah, so dramatic yeah. that is so yeah. traumatizing for so long to to find relief from that just by having a different way of looking at it yes um it 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 was a very emotional moment because I was given this news on camera. They were filming me for a program called Who Do You Think You Are? Yeah. And uh, it's a w- wonderful BBC program where they, they they look at a person's life and history and ancestors and choose someone, if there is someone interesting, to find out about and to take the the, the living subject person back on a journey into the life of right. this ancestor. Like this is your life kind of thing. Y- yes, mm-hmm. Exactly. In my case, to my astonishment, because they tell you nothing in advance, the cameras began rolling, and I realized it was my father's life they were going to examine, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. Um, but were you ta- were he, was he alive? No, no. Now, no. When, when, how, long, how old were you when he passed? Um, I was in my late 30s. Were you guys able to have a relationship? Yes, um, but it was not a very sustained one. Um, because of the anger. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, it 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 was difficult being in his company. And okay, so you so you're on the show, and and they say it's going to be your father's life. No, they don't say that. They just left it up to me to work it out. Oh my god! Um, and and uh, they just read start reading you stories. Or? Yes, that's right. In this case, it was about my my father's military history. Uh, we were in the um, we were in the uh, the war museum uh-huh. in, in London, and uh, they tell you nothing. You see, and I I've been advised um, pack a bag for a few nights away, um, put in some wet weather gear, and bring your passport. This was when I went to do this interview at the Imperial War Museum. Well, then we got into a car when the interview was over, and it was only by looking at the road signs I realized we were going to Portsmouth. And I thought, aha, we're going to get on a ferry and go somewhere. I didn't know where we were going. In fact, we went to France, and the next morning I was standing in on a spot by a railway line where the military historian I was with told me my father would certainly have stood because they knew exactly what happened to the train that he was on uh, outside a French town called um, uh, Abbeville. Did they know what happened in your family? 
Um, I don't think those, I don't think that particular man did know. But later on, I was to meet someone who did. And he was the one who showed me this newspaper cutting that that uh, Corporal Alfred Stewart had returned home severely shell-shocked. I don't know even if my mother ever knew that, but certainly the boys, we, we, we didn't know that he was suffering. And I was assured nothing would ever have got better from, for him all his life. He would have stayed with the trauma of that, uh, those experiences because what happened to him when they were outside Abbeville, um, they were bombed and strafed and shelled. They had to abandon their train and then they had to walk back to Cherbourg from where they were. It was a long hike. And along the way, there were all kinds of horrific incidents of uh, civilian columns of refugees and civilians just being gunned down on the highway from from planes oh, attacking them. Uh, a lot of this, my father would have witnessed and experienced, and um, it it left him marked for life. It's it, it, I it, it, you know it's it's sad, but it's a, a, an amazing gift that you were able to be given this new information. Yes, to, yes. To, I can't imagine the unburdening. To, to let go of some of that anger. and Yes, and th- th- that was most important because anger is a bad thing to oh, hold on to. It's just cancer. And, uh, um, but yet it also left me feeling that I, I, should, I, I should find some way of making it up to him. I'd, I'd said all these, t- told these public stories about what he did and how he behaved. And, Without um, being sympathetic. Yeah, exactly. And now I wanted to, I can now put it in a context. My father was sick. Right, he was yeah. ill and didn't right. know what he was doing. Had no control over what he was doing. And that doesn't mean to say that I condone the violence. Violence is never a solution right. to anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, you, you, you know, this is why a, a, a fairly recent movement in this area is saying domestic violence is not a, a woman's issue. Yeah, it's a man's issue. Yeah. Okay, there are some women who beat up their husbands. That yeah. does that does happen. It's very rare, and it, also it's weird with domestic violence because there's this weird uh, stigma around it. To uh, other people exact, aren't supposed to be get involved. Exactly, Don't get involved. Exactly, um, and it's humiliating and embarrassing for everyone. Yeah, um, and that was one of the things I struggled with as a child was the sense of shame I carried with me because when fights arose in my house and they would be yelling and so forth, things being thrown. We lived in a community where people were cheek by jowl. And so everyone would hear that. In fact, we had a wonderful neighbor. Her name was Lizzie Dixon. And Lizzie Dixon worked in a weaving shed and had done all her life. And she was a big, powerful woman. And I do quite clearly remember one night her throwing our front door open. We we never locked our doors. Right. Throwing the front door open when my father was in one of his rages and standing in front of him and raising her fist in his face and saying, come on, Alf Stewart, you try it on me. Let's see how far you get with that. Come on, have a go at me. Because she would have flattened him. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> great, great woman. I wish... I wish I could meet her again to say thank you to her because oh, she she often stepped in and stopped things from getting worse. You really, know, but, a lot. But it was it was embarrassing. It was humiliating. And there's and, no consistency in the house. You don't know. No. You know what? You know. There's no way to define love. No. Because you know, is, who's he going to be? Yeah. It, it was truly chaos. And when you look back at your creative career, you know, how do you frame that? Like, you know, your desire to to act. 
in in relation to to that emotional situation. Well, thanks to my seventeen years living in Los Angeles and some expensive but high quality therapy, uh-huh. I have been able to put those pieces together. I think the initial attraction to me of being an actor yeah. was that I could avoid being myself. Sure. I could be someone other than Patrick Stewart and in a different environment from the one that I lived in. And from the first moment that I ever walked on stage in front of a darkened auditorium with a couple of hundred people sitting there, I was never afraid. I was never fearful. I didn't suffer from stage fright because I felt so safe. On that stage, Mm. I wasn't Patrick Stewart. I wasn't in the environment that frightened me. Um, I was pretending to be someone else, and I liked the other people I pretended to be. So I felt nothing but security from being on stage. And I think that's what drew me to this strange job of playing make-believe, which is what we do. It's, it's um, interesting to me, Ian, because <laughs> when I spoke to, to Sir Ian, you know, and you guys are friends, like he was able to sort of identify that the shame he felt from being closeted it did, oh, it did yeah. not able him uh, to have an emotional life. Yes, yes. So he could play these parts where he mm. had a full emotional life. Yeah. I, I, I have heard Ian talk. We, we have shared our experience, uh-huh. of course. We, we shared a dressing room for six months when we were doing Waiting for Godot, and we talked often about these things. Um, it's, uh, I, for instance, yeah. uh, I could not act anger. For many, many, many years. Because you were too afraid of it? Exactly. Wow. I was fearful what might come out if I really... Because as, as an actor, you tap into real experiences, uh-huh. real emotions. You know, we have, this, uh, w- we have this life experience, which only builds and builds and gets more and more uh, profound yeah, yeah. with each year that you live. And nothing is ever wasted on an actor no experience is ever wasted mm-hmm. because you store it away it goes into this bank account of experience and then you want to uh, you want to be thought to be uh, having a true a genuine ex- an authentic experience yeah. on stage you tap into those things that will help you to provide that to give the appearance of authenticity yeah, yeah. Um, and I couldn't do I faked anger for years and years and years and years and indeed a directors would say to me that's not quite working you know can we find another it's way it's getting you stuck do it? somewhere well of course it was well you to be at the to, 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 to be witness of real unbridled rage mm-hmm. how how would you you must have been terrified to put you know, what was in you you had to assume on some level that part of your father was in you I I, I know what and I knew what was in me. It was many of the same things that my father felt. I, I know that now without doubt. I I have occasions very rare now because I like to think that I am more understanding of myself and more in control of myself. Um, I I like to think that. Um, I can go into a place of anger, of rage, of fury, mm. and can contain it to the character that I'm playing and not let it break out. Because in my ordinary private life, there have been moments. It happened with a paparazzi a few months ago. Really? Yeah. Just a few months ago. Just a few months ago. This incident ha- lasted seconds. You but felt it. I was shaking from what I had done and ashamed that I had lost 
control, even though it had worked. And I got into the safety of, of my car with a driver. I had let myself down, but it happened so fast. Scary. There was no opportunity right. to, to say, I'm feeling this. I'm going to get control of it. I will not let go. No, th there was. it was totally impulsive. There was no reasoning behind it. I did not prepare myself for that. It happened to me as if it was happening to somebody else. And, and that's the scariest part of rage. Yes, it oh is. Oh, my God. And it's, you feel like a, it's a <clears> possession. <throat> and then there's that immediate moment where you're like, oh, my God, my fucking father. Yes, and, absolutely. And, and they, you know, they put yeah. the wiring in. Why it, it makes sense. Yeah. And then the shame comes back. Uh -huh. Oh. So uh, when I played Macbeth a few years ago, we yeah. did it as a sort of Cold War production. It was set, set uh, as if it might have been in a Soviet satellite country, yeah. um, you know, after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd rehearsed this for six or eight weeks um, but it wasn't until the first dress rehearsal when I was in my military uniform with a forage cap on my head. And I had a little ritual. My my dresser would stand by the dressing room door and hand me an AK-47, which I took on stage with me, tucked under my arm. Um, and she would give me this thing. And I turned to look in the mirror. I'd grown a mustache for this mm, role. Mm. And I don't know why. I, I mean, a, a mustache or Macbeth, it kind of sounds a little bit weird. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, until I looked in the mirror to check that I had everything I needed, and my father was looking straight back at me. <sighs> I'd actually created him. It's interesting that <clears throat> I wasn't going to play a good guy. I was playing one of the worst monsters in drama, <laughs> Macbeth. Yeah. Um, and I had made myself look like my father, and there had been no conscious, rational choices behind those decisions at all until I saw what I looked like in the mirror. And and did you find that you were able to process anything in those performances? That, oh, like, very much so, yes. Very much so. Be because I knew then that I could let the rage, the fury, the, the, the violence out authentically and nothing bad would happen to me. In fact, I would be helping myself because it is therapeutic. Yeah, absolutely. And how were those performances received? Um, pretty well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, we did. Uh, we opened that production in Chichester, uh, d down on the Chichester Festival Theatre. It was so successful. We transferred to the West End of London. That was so successful. We wow. took the show to Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York, and that sold out before we got off the plane. That the equity very, very kindly allowed us to transfer the whole production to Broadway, where we played another twelve weeks. So. You might say that my father had some hand in making that production such a success because when my son's mother-in-law came to see it in New York, they live on Long Island, um, my son and his wife and uh, her parents were going to come backstage. Uh, my daughter-in-law's mother refused to come backstage. She said, no way am I going back to meet that guy. She had met me before, and we got on very well. She said, you'll find me in the bar across the road. And she went in there to have a drink to get Macbeth out of her system. That's fascinating, man. <clears throat> so you've been here, you were in Hollywood for 17 years, and you made a choice to move. You were brought here. On an opportunity. Yes, exactly. So before that happened, you were just primarily a stage actor, and you'd done television in Britain and some movies. I'd, I'd done some television, uh, not a lot, and I had appeared in quite small roles in some movies. Um, my my biggest break that I got while I was still living in England was to be cast in David Lynch's movie Dune. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that was, uh, that was, I guess, the first time that anything that I had done had really been seen in the United States. And so how, where were you, like, in terms of your, your attitude about acting? Were you comfortable? Were you happy to be, was your career uh, okay? <clears throat> yeah, it, it was. And it was not long before that that I had had this um, kind of epiphany as a result of a conversation that I had had with a director who was about to direct me in a show. I was going to play a character called Leontes in The Winter's Tale. Mm -hmm. This is another Macbeth type. He's a very, very bad man. I mean, he kills his own son. He kills his wife. A horrible man. And this director said to me, "I I, I want you to do this because I think this man actually exists inside you. Now, I had never talked to him about the things we have been talking about. Yeah. But this man was a director and a psychologist, uh-huh. in fact. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And he said, felt it. He felt it. when you do this role, I want you to tap that Leontes, which already exists inside of you. And I said, whoa, oh, I don't think I can do that. He said, listen, you do this, trust me, and I will always be at your side. Nothing bad will happen to you because if you fall, I will catch you. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredible statement for a director to yeah. say. But I believed him and trusted him. So I went on stage and I played this monster. A friend of mine, an uh, English professor yeah. at UCLA, came to see it several times and actually said to me, you would have had more success in this role, Patrick. I had a modest success with it. But you would have had more success if we had not felt we shouldn't be watching that what was happening to you was too private, too uh, internal, too exclusive, too shocking to reveal. He said all the time I was watching you, I wanted to look away. Really? So I put that down as a success. Sure. And from that moment on, I couldn't fake it anymore. anymore. Yeah. Because I'd had the experience of tapping my own feelings and exposing my own feelings, and I wasn't going to go back to fakery. It's 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 interesting to me that that now with the, with blunt talk and you know, I know Jonathan Ames I know a couple of the writers uh, Duncan Birmingham used to write for my show that it, it, it seems that after years of uh, of doing you know Picard and then then years of doing uh, Professor Xavier that these are are relatively controlled people mm-hmm. uh, you know as characters they're grounded <clears throat> they're they're intense they're they you know they're leaders but they are in control of themselves right right and now Blunt is is, a, is sort of this w- exciting comedic opportunity he's a flawed character he's had uh, you know he's been married several times you've been married a few times yeah I, I imagine as the series goes on we'll meet those wives and, and we'll get more of that backstory mm-hmm. we we meet uh, the most recent wife in uh, in this first season mm-hmm. and um, I'm looking forward to meeting Walter's first wife because I've got a good idea who I would like to play that an English actress I admire very much and it would be fun to have her on the show but um, at the moment we've met two sons uh, ages about 40 years difference in their ages a five-year-old and a 45-year-old actually I can talk about it now played by my son oh good my own son uh, plays Walter's son has your relationship now you're on your third wife right can we rephrase that a little bit? I'm sorry. I mean, You're married I, to the woman you love. Yeah, there you go. Okay. I knew and, you could do it. And and <laughs> you're on and your you've, third you've, wife. You've, you've finally found happiness. Indeed, I have. Okay. Yes. Oh yes. Uh, so we've reframed that. And you have uh, you have two children. 
or three? I have two children, four grandchildren. From from, from they're my older. first wife. Yes, yes. Now, if you, if it's not too personal, now in 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 the course of their upbringing, that now I don't know how did your like we've talked about your father a little bit, but he obviously lived long enough to see you work. He did, and he came to see me a lot. I think he was quite proud of what I was achieving um, when I was in regional theatre, and then particularly when I joined the Royal Shakespeare Company. Who, uh, and he saw me there many times. And in, was there a resistance to the pride at first, and then finally you, you felt, did, did that mean something to you, even with your anger that, that this man was so impressed mm. with you? It did mean something to me, yes. Uh, m- meant a great deal to me. Um, I think at first he thought that there was that this enthusiasm for acting and then wanting to become a professional actor was was pretty silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nobody in my family had ever become an actor. You know, we they worked in factories, in industry. They went down the coal so, mines, yeah. you know. Um, <clears throat> but when he saw that I was making a career of it, albeit a modest career, mm-hmm. I was... Uh, I was out of work for three weeks when I left drama school, and then I got a job as an acting ASM in weekly rep, a, a different play every Monday night. Right. Um, uh, I was never out of work again for about 18 years. Yeah. I worked continually. And I think this impressed him because my father had a terrific work ethic, uh-huh. and, and he could see that I could make a living, I, I could afford to get married, I could buy a house, I could educate my children, uh, and this was all through this peculiar job that I chose to do. And I think I think he felt real pride about my achievements. I wish very much both my parents could have seen my Star Trek experiences because I think I think my father would have appreciated Jean-Luc Picard, mm-hmm. and I think he would have been happy to see that I could make something of a military figure um, and give him um, a three-dimension, which perhaps he did not think me capable of, and, and to be aware that suddenly, and it was suddenly, it was overnight, um, my my reputation, my status as an actor went from well, if you didn't go to the Royal Shakespeare Company or occasionally watch obscure programs on the BBC, you didn't never heard of Patrick Stewart. And then Star Trek came along, and uh, it it, and then it you became were, a, a yeah. worldwide phenomenon. Not me, but the the series. But did. you and as well. You, I mean, it, to you, an extent, yeah. I, I have to. <clears throat> so your father never saw the roles where you tapped the fury of him. No. Hmm. So I, I guess my question is, and we'll talk about Picard because I don't want. I, I obviously have finding we could probably talk for a long time. The I guess along the personal lines, were, were there? How was your relationship with your sons? Uh, you know, was it touch and go? Did you find that you were still battling the ghost of your father and bringing these kids up? And, um, occasionally, yeah. um, I, I have a son and a daughter. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, um, and I I remember only once feeling violent towards my son, and uh, it it. He had he had some irritating habits as a child. Mm-hmm. One of them was that when he came home from school, yeah. uh, when he was a teenager, he would make himself cups of tea and then take a pot of tea upstairs. He had a little like bed sitting room at the top of the house, uh, and he would start doing his homework. He was he was very rigorous about mm-hmm. that, um, but he never brought the cups back down and I would go to the cupboard eventually and it would be bare empty nothing to drink a cup of coffee or coffee and I would go up to his room and there would be 25 mugs all with 
uh, scum on uh-huh. them, half drunk sure. cups of tea and coffee, and uh, and you know with with the stuff growing in them. Sure. So this had happened once, and I did grab him by the front of his shirt. Mm-hmm. And shake him, Ugh. but that as bad as it got. Oh, I was good. so irritated. You know what? He still does that thing today. So, uh, but we have a fantastic relationship. When I was arriving outside your front door, yeah. it was my son I was talking to on the phone because uh, we 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 had a great time when he came here to to be in blunt talk, and we're hoping that there will be more appearances oh, that's, for uh, him. Great. So the opportunity to do Star Trek it was a fluke in a way, the way you've described it. You're mm. like, you'll just get in and out, we'll make a few bucks. And then it became a, a sort of a defining uh, role for you. Like you, you are associated with it forever. Mm. You go to Comic-Con and people want, <laughs> they they expect that. They expect Picard stories and they want, you meant, you meant a lot to a lot of people. I, I'm not a Trekkie, so I don't have the depth of, the, the the what you must witness all the time people that's, come that's up all right don't don't feel bad about that <laughs> but and then oh, the the x-men franchise is also a huge thing it's very funny to me that you and uh, sir ian mckellen have these recurring roles in these fantastic yeah. franchises you must sit with each other and go like it's unfucking believable yeah, yeah, exactly that <laughs> we, we would often sit in our trailer when we made the first x-men movie saying how did this come about how did it happen i'll tell you how it came about and 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 I think the fact that the two of us and other actors who mm-hmm. have come into this uh, into this genre um, spend so much time on a stage with heightened language in right. our mouths, playing kings, emperors, sure. uh, tyrants, villains, yeah. uh, uh, clowns, whatever, and and so we fitted very comfortably into the world of fantasy and science fiction because we'd already been in it for a long time right and that there is uh, there is something heightened about both um, star trek and x men something that's not totally 100% real there is a, there is sure, a, of course. a theatricality about it shakespearean yeah, absolutely Shakespearean. I've, I have, and Greek as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do remember the day sitting on the bridge of the Enterprise, very late one evening, and and uh, looking at the set, and suddenly realizing, maybe the reason I am so comfortable on this set is that actually it represents an Elizabethan theater. Yeah, you know, there are entrances downstage left and downstage right. There are entrances up at the, the <laughs> yeah. upstage left, upstage right. Uh-huh. There is even a raised area because in the original Globe or or, or the Playhouse, mm-hmm. they had a raised balcony at the back where they could play scenes that that were either you know meant to be elevated or they just wanted to separate them from the rest of the action. That I had been inhabiting this uh, this spaceship bridge without realizing that, in fact, and and what about the captain's chair? Right, it's a throne. Of course, you know. Yeah. I mean, I had I had two chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I had one ex-president and uh, one um, uh, Secretary of State say to me, "Oh, and one astronaut." Uh huh. Buzz Aldrin, no uh-huh. less, say to me, "Can I sit in the chair?" It had such a such a reputation, and um, yes, uh, um, Ronald Reagan came on the set and uh, and asked 
May, may I? Yes. Sit down. Of course he did. The old actor. Yeah, he of might. course. Yeah, and he looked great in, in that chair. So, yes, we even had a throne. And once early on in the series when I was getting very irritated at the inference made by numerous journalists mm-hmm. that given my Royal Shakespeare Company Shakespeare background that I was somehow slumming. Do you know what I mean by that term? Yeah, sure. I was going down market. Selling out. By, by, selling out mm-hmm. by appearing in a syndicated science fiction show. What do they expect you guys to do? Well, no, we're just earning a living. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I turned on this journalist and I said, listen, understand one thing. Yeah. All those years of sitting in all those thrones of England was nothing but a preparation for sitting in the captain's chair of the Enterprise. <laughs> and And... That night, got driving home, yeah. I thought how accurate that really is, uh-huh. sitting in that exposed yeah. uh, ritualistic seat, mm-hmm. had all of the connotations of, of a throne. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, I'd been doing this for a long time without realizing it. You're, and can I tell you one other thing? Of course. There's no, there are no pockets in, in spacesuits. None. Yeah, and and I all those years of wearing tights. Yeah, and and uh, and hose, doublet and hose. Yeah. No, no pockets at all. You can't put your fags in there, or your, you know, your yeah. lighter, or your change for the telephone. Uh, not at all. I guess um, there was no reason to carry things in space. It, it didn't fit on the belt or whatever. Certainly not on the Enterprise. All you had to do was ask to ask the computer for something, and you got it. So, you you know. It's one of the things I say to student actors, try not to put your hands in your pockets when you when you perform because it actually it it doesn't seem convincing. It's relaxing to you, but actually it has an artificial look about it. Um artificially relaxed. Ba- way back in 2000, yeah, that uh, you remember the uh, presidential election of 2000, uh, yes. won't you? Yeah. Um well, I I had been introduced um to um to the vice president when he was vice president at at an event at the White House. I, I was able to have a little conversation um, when, when he was uh, campaigning mm-hmm. for the presidency in 2000 um, about, about his physical presence when he was giving speeches on stage. Um, uh, vice President Gore had a habit of putting one hand in his pocket and gesturing with the other one. Yeah, that weird And then thing. taking that hand out of his pocket, putting the other hand in his pocket and gesturing with this hand. And I, I, and he, bless him, he listened. I said, don't do it. It looks insecure and weak. The strongest thing that you can ever do when you're yeah. facing an is just let your arms hang by your sides. Because apart from anything else, mm-hmm. it's showing how relaxed you are, sure. not stiff, but relaxed. But it is also making you look vulnerable and for a politician that's a good thing i don't think you told him in time he crept up behind me at an event a few years ago and tapped me on the shoulder and said if i had listened more to you things could have been very different from me he's a he's a very delightful man and the the relationship with the with McKellen got stronger recently, right? You you guys were not friends necessarily in England, or you were? Uh, oh, n- not friends, no. Right. Um, Ian, you must understand, was a star from the beginning of his career. He was marked for stardom when he was still at Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. Um, he was giving outstanding performances then. I saw him work as a young actor. Mm-hmm. I, I was astonished by his versatility and range and... and uh, 
uh, and excitement that he brought to his stage performances. And furthermore, I knew I couldn't do what he was doing. He was better than me and would always be better than me. So I was just a, a distant fan. Then we worked on a stage production together. We only did a handful of performances of a new Tom Stoppard play. And I saw him in close-up. Well, that only just cemented even further what I felt about him. Mm-hmm. And, and I was a little intimidated by him. He was very sm- I had had no education. Ian says that I'm obsessed with my bad education because mm-hmm. I always bring this up. I left school at 15. He went to Cambridge University. Right. So I always kept a distance from yeah. him until there we were in adjoining luxury trailers yeah. in Toronto filming the first X-Men movie. And as with films like that, you know, you spend much more time in your trailer sure. than you do on set acting because setups are so take so long. And uh, so we hung out in one another's trailers. And in conversations began, I think, to realize how much we had in common, how many things, our love of Shakespeare, uh, being in the Royal Shakespeare Company, the actors, the other directors we admired, um, the things that we liked to do, the things, we had a great deal in common. So you learned all on the job. Yeah. That's amazing. It's really profound. And and, then, so you and Ian developed this relationship and that's where your your, uh, both being in Godot happened. It it is, we were, Ian was always going to do Waiting for Godot with this wonderful director, Sean Mathias, and they they met to have a conversation. So who should play the other tramp? And it was Ian who said, I think you should ask Patrick Stewart to do it. And I I, I, I was asked, I said yes instantly, because it's a great legendary sure. play. And, and the two characters are on stage for the entire play. Right. Uh, and uh, much of the play is a duologue between the two of them. Yeah. So the idea of sharing the stage in a, a Sam Beckett play with Sir Ian McKellen oh. was irresistible. But Ian said to me, I think before we began rehearsals, one day we were talking about what was coming up, and he said, you know, I don't think this play would work if every night we meet for the first time that day on stage. Mm-hmm. I think we have to begin the play at least 45 minutes earlier. I think we should share a dressing room. Well, by then we were both actors of a certain status who expected to have their own private dressing room. Uh So this was a very unusual thought of his, but he was absolutely right. Those two (laughs) tramps have been together, been friends for over 50 years. There's a line in the play. Oh, I don't know, over 50 years. And um, Ian was perfectly right. The audience had to believe that this was a fifty-year-old relationship. So you shared a dressing room. So we shared we shared a dressing room, and uh, with all that that means, yeah, you know, it's it's a little it's a little bit like a marriage. Uh huh. That's fascinating, man, and it it paid off. It it paid off so well that it meant by the time. Ian said his first line, nothing to be done, and I responded, I'm beginning to come around to that idea myself. Um, we had already had dialogue right and and uh, whether if it was just recounting what we'd done during the day and we'd looked into one another's eyes and you know we'd got dressed we we got dressed together we put all this crap that we had to wear yeah, all yeah. the time because we were dirty old right, tramps right. and making ourselves look as horrible as possible um so the play was already underway Oh, it's amazing. But it wasn't written by Samuel Beckett all right i know you got to go do cordon <clears throat> so let's uh, i got two more things i want to sure. just uh, First, the it seems like Walter Blunt and Blunt Talk is is, is, is is in your mind is it a I, I imagine you're up against the typecast of of Picard to some degree that there's an expectation of it that you're in, embedded in the the global imagination as that guy. 
Yes, and sometimes just in a professional imagination, I persuade, trying to persuade a director several years ago that he should have me in his film playing a very nice supporting role. I've been campaigning mm -hmm. for this role, and we had a great meeting. It went so well, and he said to me, "You, you, you know, you're a terrific actor. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed meeting you, but why would I want Jean Luc Picard in my <sighs> movie?" That's hard. Uh, yeah, you know, there's, and there's almost nothing you can do about that. Right, but now this is like very different from Picard. He's a very you know earthly being, a very sort of flawed and exciting character. So that must it must be exciting to play. It's so exciting, and uh, perhaps most of all because I'm having to think a little differently. The work, the preparation is always the same. It's consistent with with how I work to get the most out of a role. Mm -hmm. But now there is that question you have to ask is, and where is this funny? Right. <laughs> so you've done all the other work, but now there's an extra layer, yeah. an extra element of performance or of behavior yeah. that you add on top of that that stops something from being just stupid or melodramatic right. or unbelievable and becomes funny right and you're working with comedic actors oh well, well in in blunt talk i yeah. mean yeah all it's of surrounded. them far more yeah. experienced than i am right in playing comedy it's great i mean we have richard lewis on the show sure. for instance i've watched a, him he's been in here yeah, yeah has he oh sure playing a freudian analyst he, and he did anybody great. was born to play a freudian analyst it's richard but it's lewis. interesting for a guy that's <clears throat> built an entire career being the patient to 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 switch seats like that because I watched that first episode and part of the second one and you know he you know he really did a controlled performance oh, I mean he terrific. he removed some Lewisness yeah. and, and and sort of like locked in yes you're you're that's a excellent way of put it Lewisness was 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 taken out of it and I look into his eyes and I think I could trust this guy not that I wouldn't trust. Richard Lewis. Sure. Maybe I should reconsider that statement. Right. But trust him to listen to you. That's a yes. unique thing for Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So the other question I have before we wrap it up is, what was your experience being knighted? Oh, it was it was exciting. Were your parents either alive? No, no. Mm -hmm. They they I I was fortunate to be awarded an OBE in uh, uh, two thousand. And in then 2010, um, the, the knighthood, to my astonishment, uh, came uh, came in a brown uh, plain envelope, except it said on the top of it, uh, 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 cabinet office, cabinet office. Mm -hmm. And it had been sitting in a plastic bag with a lot of other mail that had been in a closet of a motel where I was filming for about 10 days. Wow. And I had forgotten that I put this bag of mail in there and very early one horrible cold november morning i i realized i've got a few minutes i should look through this and there was this letter cabinet office what the heck is this <laughs> i opened it up and it said we are pleased to tell you that and i remember you think they'd special deliver that wouldn't you <laughs> wouldn't you <laughs> yeah you know yeah, some kind of their regular post somebody in some fancy uniform right you should have brought it to me um no it came by the mail i don't think it was stamped however okay i think letters from Magic. the cabinet office go yeah, for free yeah. and um i remember staring at the brown wall of this motel room in complete disbelief that this had happened i couldn't take in the news that you know when i was when I was a young actor, I admired beyond words Sir Alec Guinness, Sir John Gielgud, Sir Laurence Olivier, Sir Cedric Hardwick. These were all people that were heroes of mine. Yeah. 
And suddenly I was being asked, do you want to join them? Yeah, you know, um, and what I wanted to do was to rush on the set that morning because we were shooting the big dinner party scene in Macbeth. We were we filmed Macbeth yeah. as well, and say, guys, you'll never believe what's happened. But you're not allowed to do that You've until got the to, ceremony. No, you mustn't speak about it at all. Ever? I I mean, there are stories that people who have kind of you know, uh, telegrams to spilt the beans, have found that actually they didn't get it after all really yeah yeah so yeah. did you the, the ceremony with the queen was that it was the queen that i got my obe from the prince of okay. wales yeah. i got the knighthood from her majesty and that was an especial pleasure um yeah. and she was so impressive she gave out 100 awards that morning mm -hmm. she was on her feet i think she was 86 yeah she was on her feet by the entire hour she spoke a few sentences to each person receiving an award and was absolutely delightful. But it all kind of happened in a bit of a blur. The, the only thing that I was obsessed with was that I wouldn't fall over because you have to walk backwards away from her. Uh -huh. After the you know, oh, the you, knighting, that's the, you the sword, the yeah. sword and the two shoulders, and then the ribbon around the neck, and then standing up in a brief conversation, and then you have to take three <laughs> paces away from her while still facing her. And, and you're on the top of some steps, uh -huh. you know. So my horror was that I would fall backwards down yeah. these a steps. Year, you, you know, a lifetime in theater, and <clears throat> yeah, you get you yeah, yeah, three yeah. steps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mess up the stage management of it. That's beautiful. Now, when did your mother, would she live long enough to see you work? Yes, she did. Oh, she good. did. They, they, they died only two years apart. And um, my mother, I know, was proud because she told me. Mm. And she loved that I was having success and that... They both of them were pleased that I was actually able to have a, a, a quite comfortable life. I'll, I'll say. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. Great talking to you. And you. Thanks very much, Mark. What an honor to, uh, to have that guy. Just a solid guy and thoughtful and, and amazing sort of that, the idea of... of be given, being given the opportunity and taking it to find empathy and love in your heart for a, a, a sort of injury that, that lasted that long, his relationship with his father, is just a, what a phenomenal turn of events. Really a, really a, great, a great experience to talk to Sir Patrick Stewart. Boomer Lee!